0: terms apply. Purchases must be on card. Visit go.mx slash you know.
1: At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home. The place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, Trust Amika Home Insurance. Amica Empathy is our best policy.
2: If you wander through New York's Times Square Theater District today, on most evenings around 630, it's hard not to feel the excitement. Excitement, yes, because the cultural life of the city is bounding back live and in person after our period of quiet. And it's that old excitement and anticipation that could never leave that fills the streets. It's the excitement before the curtain rises on a Broadway show. Titles of brand new Broadway shows light up the recently dark marquees, and several of the old standby shows that we hope will live forever are playing to enthusiastic houses once again. And very shortly we will see what today's theatre community chooses as the best of the best at the 2023 Tony Awards. But if we travel back in time to the Gilded Age, somewhere beginning in the 1870s and 1880s, we'd find similarly excited crowds, but perhaps not quite yet at the centre of it all, what we know today as Times Square. And if we ask a passerby what their favourite Broadway musical is... And they'd look at us a little curiously. In the Gilded Age, Broadway was a street. Not yet an entire concept of extravagant glittering spectacles on stage. But spectacles and stars there certainly were. And in this very special show with a very special guest, we'll get a sense of just what Gilded Age audiences saw and where they saw it when they went to the theater in the time of glitter and gold at a time before Broadway. I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, where every two weeks we journey into corners light and dark for a look at America's Gilded Age, France's Belle Epoque, and England's late Victorian and Edwardian eras. When the curtain rose at the Hudson Theatre on 44th Street on the night of February 11th, 2017, a significant moment in Broadway theatre history was being made. Perhaps many in the audience that night, they were there to see a stunning revival of Stephen Sondheim's Sunday in the Park with George starring Jake Gyllenhaal and Annalie Ashford. They may not have been aware of it. What was happening was that Broadway's oldest standing theater was coming back to life as a legitimate theater. Built in 1903 and with a long history of various uses, This jewel of the theater, intact with so much of its original detail, can take us back to an earlier age of glitter and gold. The very lobby where the audience entered that night and now enters regularly today, has been virtually unchanged since Gilded Age ladies once swept in, full skirts brushing the tiled floor, plumed hats drifting past the heavy wooden doors, and everyone's eyes caught by the light reflected off the brilliantly polished green marble walls. When you enter this theater yourself, you get one of those rare moments when if you just squint a little bit, you really can see the past. But the perplexing thing is that with so much neon and so many modernized theaters in today's technology, it's hard to imagine just what was going on in the theater in that shiny Gilded Age world And wonder, what was it like? Surprisingly, much more remains today than you might ever realize of what Gilded Age audiences once saw. And yes, my listeners, it seems that perhaps, just perhaps, a couple of noteworthy celebrities of this old world have just never left their beloved theaters. And we may, if we're lucky, glimpse them today. In this very special show, my guest, Broadway theater historian and master theater district tour guide Tim Dolan, takes us back to give us a sense of the theaters, the shows, and the stars that captured the eyes and the imagination of the Gilded Age. Like so many actors and theater professionals, Tim Dolan came to New York on a family visit and, well, in one way or another, just never left. Tim landed for good in the Big Apple from Detroit, Michigan in 2003 and began his career in the theater as an actor, educator, entrepreneur, tour guide, and an extraordinary historian. A member of Actors' Equity for over 13 years, he has appeared on stage and in film while here in New York, and his credits include productions of Alter Boys and Once Upon a Mattress, as well as season two of HBO's Boardwalk Empire. He has taught at Rosie O'Donnell's arts organization, Rosie's Theater Kids, and has been the resident historian on New York's New York One news program On Stage with Frank DeLella. Tim launched his theater district tour company Broadway Up Close to share his passion and love of Broadway history with all of us, and he has been covered in the press by the New York Times, USA Today, and in Playbill, among others. While he lives elsewhere in Manhattan, Times Square is his second home. I've taken several of Tim's tours in the past, and I cannot recommend the magic that he brings to telling stories of Broadway enough. Tim, it is truly my honor to have you join the Gilded Gentlemen for our journey back in time today.
3: Your dream. Thank you for having me.
2: I'm so glad you're here. Now, this show is really about what theater was like in New York during the Gilded Age. Now, I'm sure... Mrs. Astor would never have set foot in a public theater, aside from the Metropolitan Opera, of course, but a whole lot of other people certainly did. And what I find fascinating is some of what they saw we can still see today. So, Tim, I'd really like to just drop ourselves in the middle of Gilded Age, New York, and let's say the mid-1870s. So just what
3: was the theater district at that time and where was it? Well, I think if you go just before that... Uh well, just about 100 years, you find in, in Manhattan, in New York City, anytime you gather a large group of people, you have to entertain them. So once we got enough people in the island of Manhattan, we start our first theater district, uh, then was called Park Row. If you know the musical Hamilton, there's a reference in Act Two where they're at the theater, and uh, that is them at Park Row. And then as as the island develops north, as we move up Broadway, so does our theater district as the people move. And so we eventually make our way to Union Square. We eventually settle in Madison Square. And then 1870s leading into the 1880s, that's when we start to move to Herald Square. As George M. Cohen says, give my regards to Broadway. Remember me to Herald Square.
2: And if someone is not a New Yorker or familiar with New York, what's a good landmark for Herald Square? What would you say that will make someone recognize that?
3: The easiest, the most iconic, of course, is Macy's. The glorious, glorious Macy's.
2: Absolutely, from the Thanksgiving Day Parade, right? <laughs> of Among others. Now, so if we went to the theater, let's just say in the 1870s, what
3: kind of show would we see? So, uh, very different than our musicals of today. It was a mix of operetta, it was a mix of vaudeville. And so, you had different theaters presenting different things. But where we have legitimate Broadway theater today that is structured musicals with stories and songs and dances that support the telling of that story, shows back in the 1800s were more a dog act and then a woman coming to sing an opera aria, uh, maybe a comedian. And you had a lot of different acts that, when threaded all together, presented variety theater as opposed to a structured book musical like today. So the old Variety show,
2: like an early version of Ed Sullivan, is this what we're talking about? That's exactly right.
3: Just on stage. (laughs) Right. Yeah.
2: Now, of course, like all of Manhattan, and and you just said this, the theater world just moved up the island like like everybody else. Yeah. And so the next sort of point in time I'd like to stop at is really right in the middle of, of the Gilded Age. So let's just say the early 1880s. And this seems to be a point where things were kind of happening. We had the new Metropolitan Opera House built in 1883 on Broadway right. and 39th, just a block away from Correct. where we are recording this right now. But there were some theaters surrounding it and one of them that I found really interesting was the Casino Theater, which was built the year before in 1882. Can you talk about the Casino cuz it sounds like that had kind of a reputation
3: some interesting stuff going on. Yeah, the Casino Theater was kind of glorious uh, both outside and inside. You'll uh, I'm not a big fan of homework, but if you're listening, your, your homework is to go and quickly Google the casino theater so you can look at photos of what this glorious building looked like. There was kind of a big turret on the um, point of the building, uh, Moorish style, so very different. There's not really any Broadway theaters today that are similar to the casino. And the the big selling point of the casino was the rooftop gardens. So the big trend of the days uh, of the late 18, early 1900s was roof garden theaters. So you'd go see a show downstairs. Maybe in the summer months, you'd go upstairs. But the big draw of these shows on the roof was that you're on the roof of the building. uh, You're outside in the elements of life. uh, You're dealing with Mother Nature. You're hoping for a cool breeze on a summer night. And you're either seeing understudies from shows downstairs that now you see upstairs or you're seeing different acts, most of them physical, because the acoustics on the roof were uh, less than desirable is what I would say. What I
2: find so fascinating about the whole roof garden concept, because really many theaters had this, right? yeah is it was a way to keep you there and yes. maybe order just one more bottle of champagne right it was kind yes. of a,
3: a money making Enterprise, correct? Yeah, I mean, the the full drive of money and revenue from upstairs was not really the shows. It was the drinking. Uh, 1919, if you flash forward in time, you know, America presents this glorious law of prohibition, and that really wipes out all of our rooftop garden theaters. A couple hung on, I think the, the Victoria Paradise Roof Garden on 42nd Street hung on until 1923 was, I think, the last. And then by then, this kind of idea of going to the roof and drinking on a roof above a theater after seeing Wicked downstairs or whatever, uh, Wicked of the Day, it kind of vanishes into history, which which hurts my little Broadway-filled heart.
2: <laughs> I heard someone say one time that Prohibition, well, at least here in New York, didn't really stop drinking. It just made it a whole lot more fun. Correct. Right?
3: <laughs> now, one of the right. things
2: about the Casino Theater is that it, it hosted a number of, of different shows as you've been talking about, but one of them was this British import musical called Floridora, which sure. opened, right, which opened in New York in 1900, sort of. Maybe the beginning of the waning of the Gilded Age, but nonetheless, certainly yeah. the period we're talking about. So can you talk about Floridora? What was this show? Why was it important? And what do you find
3: curious about it? Floridora to me is, is one of these fascinating early shows because a lot of the early shows... When you look at them today under a microscope, they kind of fall apart and you're like, what was this entertainment? What is this? But every once in a while, a show like Floridora comes along where you're like, oh, this I can I totally understand the structure of this. I can see why this feels like kind of a defining moment in the grand scheme of the musicals, uh, musical genre of today. Floridora is really the start of. Uh, less review and more something similar to like the Radio City Rockets Christmas Spectacular, where you have a long line of bevy, uh, a bevy of beauties, as it were. Clothing and costumes are then going to start influencing all of the fashions of the day. It's hard to imagine now like going to see Wicked or going to see Hamilton and being influenced by the costumes center stage. But this is a time in history where Broadway is so fused into pop culture that the things that these costumes and what these women are wearing really then influences what the women and the fashionable women of the day, what they start to adopt. Floridora, my favorite thing was the Floridora Girls. The florador girls were these seven women that uh, to nowadays uh, for lack of a better term we would call them seven gold diggers, but uh, these seven women you know were the toasts of the town the original seven florador girls I think they each said whether you know it sounds like theatrical lore but uh, that they each met their own millionaire and and these men would come and uh, you know and fla- shower them and uh, with gifts and flowers and diamonds, and then one by one they all paired off, all got married, and that was the history of the original seven florador girls uh, but But over-the-top spectacle, lots of costumes, and as it seems, lots of diamonds.
2: And one of the Floridora girls was particularly noteworthy, right? Because she ended up with Stanford White.
3: Yes, of course. One of the original Floridora girls, Evelyn Nesbitt, later in Ragtime, of course, is the girl on the swing, if you know Ragtime the musical. Uh, but this is a true story of of this guy, you know, the love triangle of Harry K. Thaw and Stanford White sees this woman as one of the Floridora girls, and then everyone, you know, is ogling her, and then chaos ensues, as it were. Yeah, it went very wrong. It did not go great.
2: <laughs> now... The area that we all know and love as Times Square was really a, a challenging bit of, of town, right, throughout most of, of the 19th century, including as uh, during the time when theaters really began to take hold there. And we're going to talk about that. But there was one great theater... That was built there pretty early, right? In the 1890s, 1895. It was called the Olympia, and it was built and created by really a quite important empresario that I think could be confusing to some people. So can you talk about... What the Olympia was and who created it?
3: Yeah, so the creation, you know, the name. Uh, I think what you're alluding to, as far as confusing, is uh, Oscar Hammerstein the first, uh, the grandfather of, of course, um, Oscar Hammerstein the second, the uh, and Hammerstein, Oklahoma, South Pacific, Sound of Music, Cinderella, um, the grandfather. Gets here to New York City. It was an 89-day journey. He got here when he was 15 years old. He uh, only spoke German when he lands here. It's the middle of the Civil War. It is winter, and and he has this kind of life he wants to set out for himself. And within moments, uh, as it were, he, um, he starts buying real estate, and he eventually sets his sights on what we now know as Times Square, uh, then was called Longacre Square, for $1 million, he buys from 44th to 45th Street, what is now the beautiful New McDonald's uh, Gap in Old Navy. Spoiler alert, not original. And he buys this plot of land and sets his sights to build a Broadway theater. And the reason he does it in 1895 is he was waiting for one thing to develop that far north in the island in which to build a theater, and that was electricity. They finally wired the streets in 1895 that far north. He can now build, and he builds the Olympia, which is three Broadway theaters on the main level, a rooftop garden theater called the Cherry Blossom Theater upstairs. It was bars. It was billiards. It was bowling alleys. And you gain access to the entire thing for 50 cents a person. To me, I think of it as like the Dave and Buster's of 1895 yeah. for Broadway. <laughs>
2: it seems like quite the theatrical megaplex. Can you right? imagine? But did people come? I mean, this was way north of the city, right, at yeah. this point. And Longacre Square was not a
3: desirable place. But but he got the audiences, right? Yeah, he got the audiences mainly because at that point, the streetcar main end for the main streetcar line was 42nd Street. And so he, the reason he sets his sights there as as a couple other impresarios that I'm sure we'll talk about did, uh, it's why Times Square is what it is. That was the end of the main thoroughfare where people were getting off trains. And so while it was a seedy neighborhood, as develops around, I think, a lot of uh, train stations and bus stations in in the history of cities in America, sketchy and seedy. But this was the destination in 1895 was this monstrosity of a building. Again, your homework, you're going to go Google and you're going to just go Google uh, a picture of the Olympia and it'll stop your heart. I mean, it was one of the most epic things in the seedy, unpaved neighborhood. Oh, and I've Googled,
2: and it really was quite extraordinary when you look at it. It's too bad that it's not there today. Yeah. So can you talk about this transition, because there were a couple of game changers in all of this, this transition from Longacre Square, kind of dirty, not very safe, seedy Longacre Square, into Times Square. What happened
3: and why is it really called Times Square? Yeah, so uh, as we noted, impresarios who kind of set eyes on this, um, one guy is Adolf Ox. He owns a small business. He sets his sights on the corner of 42nd Street and 7th, which again is the exact location where all of those streetcars are ending, the destination for all of them. That is also the epicenter in 1903 where they're building the new subway system of New York City, and this is going to be a central hub as it still is today, 120 years later. So he sets his sights on that that kind of plot of land to build the headquarters of his building. Uh, And he said to the city, if the building I build is tall enough and impressive enough, will you let me rename all of Longacre Square after my business? And the city said it would have to be crazy. And so you have to imagine barns, stables, manure, seedy, uh, you know, not very well lit side streets. And then in the middle of all of this, he builds the second tallest skyscraper in all of New York City. At that point, everyone, as they do today, looked straight into the sky and said, yeah, you win. What's your business? And he said, I own the New York Times. It's a newspaper. And this changes the name from Longacre Square officially to Times Square, named after the New York Times.
2: And I think one of the most extraordinary things for visitors to the city and maybe even some New Yorkers is
3: It's still there, right? It's still there. It's on its second makeover currently, as we record this, just down the block. You can almost hear hear the jackhammers from here. They uh, renovated the building in the 1960s, 1963. Allied Chemical bought it, ripped off the entire original facade. The New York Times said it was only there for ten years and had already moved out. And then, sixty years later, up until uh, recently, the entire building's been empty for decades, uh, as most of the money and uh, ad revenue is generated from advertisements on the outside, uh, over twenty million dollars a year, Uh, but. Now, as I sit here with you, they're gutting it for the second time. Uh, You can literally, if you walk by today, see through the building to the original steel beams from 1903. And they're filling the entire thing with a museum, a visitor center, and for the first time ever, an observation deck over Times Square. So you can see at any given time, you know, two to three hundred thousand people and me with my little iPad and my green sweatshirt standing below in the middle of Times Square.
2: You will be able to pick out Tim, seriously. <laughs> but and, uh, and so my listeners, just to be clear, this is the building where the ball drops uh, every yes, New Year's yes, Eve, yes, right? Yes, 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 yes. So, okay, so let's go back to this beginning of the early 20th century. We're still in the Gilded Age, 1903-ish. Yep. So- what kind of shows, again, were being performed at this point? My my impression is that at least at this point, a lot of the theater was really coming from England, was coming from Europe, it was being imported.
3: Is that true yeah so it's uh, it's very british it's very operetta uh we are going to return to the british operas in the 1980s with phantom of the opera and cats and these sung through musicals make a return this is the first time they kind of land on our shores broadway had always been an american art form but we have this british influence in certain little pockets and this is kind of the first moment this kind of turn of the century moment everything's being transferred from london a import- importance of being earnest peter pan uh, and then a lot of Gilbert and Sullivan operas. And so light opera, big costumes, some plot, very different from Showboat, which is not going to be for another 25 years.
2: So I'm always fascinated by these little periods where there seem to be a lot of things going on at the same time. And one is this period sort of 1902, 1903. Yeah. And this seems to be a period that was extraordinary because a number of theaters were being built exactly at this This point And one fact that's extraordinary to me is that four of them, four of these early Gilded Age theaters, you can actually still see today and in most cases have changed really not very much from those days of of Gilded Glory. So can you talk about a few of these and when they were built and what we see of them today?
3: Yeah, I'm fascinated by the timelines of things dates to me are very important as a historian, as a tour guide. And so when you really start to dig in and look at the dates, uh, you see in October of 1903, four of these glorious buildings that are still with us today for the most part, uh, 120 years later. They opened four Mondays in a row. And this, to me, really, we had a couple other theaters in Times Square, Long Acre Square, as it transitions before this. But really, this month, October 1903, as these four theaters open, then it feels like our address of Broadway really has then shifted again from Herald Square to Times Square. The four theaters, uh, chronologically, the Lyric Theater, currently home to Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, uh, which was October 12th. Uh, one exact Monday later, the 19th, was the Hudson Theater with a show called Cousin Kate. One exact Monday later, the New Amsterdam Theater, currently home to Aladdin on 42nd Street, was the October 26th and the November 2nd, which was the uh, Lyceum Theater, about to be uh, home to a a horror play called Grey House Uh, in one month. The address changes. It feels like a race to build to be the first to open. But that just might be me being a dramatic actor. Uh, I don't know if they actually were trying to outbid and, and beat each other.
2: Now, one of the things, and I learned this from tours that I took with you that I think is fascinating that I want to share with listeners. One of the characteristics of these early theaters, which you see today and experience exactly the same thing, is you see this beautiful facade, and then you enter the theater and you end up having to walk down a very long, hall usually with gilt and mirrors and chandeliers and all the rest of it before you even get to the theater and get to the auditorium
3: and this seemed to be very typical of theaters of that period. Why? So the New Amsterdam, to me, is like the perfect example of this on 42nd Street. The entire area leading up to our theaters moving in was brownstones. It's all residential. It's a seedy neighborhood with industry in the middle of the square and residences on the side. And so the residences, brownstones, were all clearly defined, the same shape, the same width, very long, very skinny. So it makes uh, the idea of building in these places like 42nd Street, it makes it perfect because you want to be on the fancy street. The fancy street is, of course, the one they wrote the musical about. It's 42nd Street. You want to be on that block, but that block's expensive. And so you can go to the next two closest cheap streets, 41st or 43rd, you build an entire city block away. But because it's already divided in brownstones, really like the New Amsterdam, you just buy one brownstone that faces 42nd Street. It gives you a sliver of real estate that gets you from a cheap street to a fancy street. Audience enters on the fancy street and then walks an entire city block through what was originally a brownstone to the actual theater a block away i mentioned the new amsterdam as being the the most fancy perfect example of it because if you walk through the lobby of the new amsterdam just before you enter the theater proper there's this little kind of glass dome ceiling area that is now the merchandise booth perfectly for aladdin and if you look that is the original garden atrium of the original brownstone It's just perfectly clear as day you're standing in someone's backyard and then you walk into this beautiful 1903 broadway theater see so much of it is still here if you just know where to look. Correct. right? Absolutely.
2: Yeah. Now, one of the things about the Lyric Theater, which was uh, the first one that you mentioned, that was famous for another reason. Because that, if I'm correct, was the beginning of another one of the great Broadway theater empires of the period. And that was the beginning of the Schubert's. Yeah. Can you talk about who they were, what they did, and why was the Lyric important? For them,
3: yeah, we could do. I could do honestly an entire hour tour of the Schuberts. I won't for the sake of anyone listening. Well, you will just come back. We'll <laughs> you'll have come you will come back exactly. Yeah, there we back. go. Sure. Uh, the Schubert brothers come from Syracuse, New York. There's three brothers. They're very scrappy. Uh, there's a middle son. His name is Sam. He's the middle child. He's the theatrical kid. He's the you know the the family breadwinner, as it were. And then there's an older and younger brother, Lee and JJ. So when they come here, six men really dominate Broadway. They called themselves a the theatrical syndicate. They had really a full monopoly over theater and specifically broadway in america these three little brothers kind of elbow their way in and as they're elbowing their way in of course they're not you know Uh, warmly embraced by the six men. The six men said, go away. They went away. They went to major cities in America, eventually make enough money by 1903 to come back to New York City and build their first Broadway theater. And the two brothers looked at Sam, the genius, the theater kid of the family, and said, where do you want to build? And he said, I want to build exactly across the street from the headquarters of the two main men of that six group uh, conglomeration there in the New Amsterdam Theater, which we just talked about. I want to be across the street. And so the Lyric Theater has a very tall, uh, skinny entrance that goes from 42nd Street to 43rd, uh, exactly the same as what we just talked about. And their office windows of the original brothers, which are still there today, face directly across the street to the offices of what was Claw and Erlanger, these two men of the theatrical syndicate. And I always say in 1903, this little West Side Story battle starts between these three scrappy little brothers and these two very powerful men uh, across the street. Well, it sounds like the
2: Schubert's won because the other two names we (laughs) don't know today. And of course, know the Schubert's right. Yes. yeah. Now, I want to move on to another theater that you mentioned because it is so fascinating. And that's the Hudson Theater, which was another theater that was built during this the that famous month of October, right, on 44th Street, and it has the distinction of being the oldest Broadway theater in existence, not the oldest continually running Broadway theater, correct, but correct. the oldest. And the reason I bring it up is because you, with your tour company, uh, and you personally offer an extraordinary tour of the Hudson Theater, which I just took a couple weeks ago with you in preparation for this show, and it's just extraordinary because that tour takes you back into the Gilded Age. I was astonished at how much in that theater has not changed, yeah. right, since this particular time that we're talking about. So let's just talk about some of the architectural details. Can you talk about what you see when you go into that theater today that will bring you back to the Gilded Age?
3: Yeah, the when you first enter the building, it had an unusually large lobby. Most Broadway theaters built by the Schuberts, because they built so many theaters, you want economically... Uh, A large lobby means less seats. Less seats means less money. So most Uber theaters, if you go into them between 44th, 45th, there's basically no lobby. It's a a vestibule box office space at best. The Hudson is the grand old mode of a 100 foot long lobby. All of the walls are original green marble. The theme of the theater is green. My company's branding is green. It it feels like a match made in heaven. They knew I was coming. It's your theater. It's my theater. They knew I was coming. (laughs) It took me 120 years to get there, but I got there. Uh, And so all the original marble is there. Light bulbs, which, again, we only had electricity for eight years before. So light bulbs are uh, a new, modern, you know, glorious thing. It had 264 light bulbs in the lobby. And then when you stepped into the second part of the lobby, because there is a second part because the lobby was so long, you had installations of Lewis Comfort Tiffany 1903 original stained glass in these three dome inset um, stained glass ceiling moments. And it is lavish. It is original. And you feel, just for a moment, that you've stepped back in time as you walk through this lobby. 100%. And as much as I deal with the Gilded
2: Age... I felt exactly like that. Yeah. I always say if you squint a little bit, you can see it. And you can. Uh You actually can. Now, what were some of the productions and the kind of productions that we would have seen at the Hudson Theater in these very early years of the 20th century?
3: So Hudson uh, Theater was built as a playhouse. Uh, There is, which is a new fun fact to me, I didn't even know. They do have a proper orchestra pit sunk into the earth that you can add. But it was built uh, really for a large play, uh, maybe a small musical. And so you have kind of big over the top plays with large casts, uh, dressing rooms uh, that went all the way up uh, the walls and sides of the building. This is a lot of American stories, because the original owners uh, struck gold with this show called The Lion and the Mouse, which is an American story about uh, things going wrong in business. And that felt very different than all the other British stuff that's being presented at the same time. And so a lot of the shows in the Hudson Theater by the Harris's, the original owner, were these kind of American stories, American plays celebrating or um, examining American life. Now.
2: I really want to spend a few minutes talking about this couple, the original yeah. theater owners, Henry and Renee Harris. Yeah. I was astonished when you started to talk about them uh, during the tour. We could do an entire podcast <laughs> just could. on them. Yes. But if you could give a version, just talk about who they were, particularly who she was, because Renee Harris was very interesting. Mr. Harris met a very sad fate. Yeah. But I don't want to give away all the clues. Can you tell us that story?
3: Yeah, of course. So those six men who ruled opposite the Schubert brothers, one of the six has a son. And his son is Henry Harris, the original owner of the Hudson Theater. He had, you know, he wanted to be just like dad. He wants dad builds theaters and makes money. Theater, building theaters equals lucrative in his mind. And so he does the same to be just like dad. Starts building theaters, goes on a first date with a a woman named Renee Wallach in the summer of 1899, August. They fall in love, love at first sight. Two months later, they get married. She says, I'm going to, instead of being a secretary to a local politician, I'm going to be the secretary to my theater building husband. She's kind of absorbed into the theater world she plans the opening night parties she would give all the notes to the actors she would decide which shows they should or shouldn't do and then uh, she would plan the interiors while her husband planned the exteriors of their buildings so they planned the Hudson together they had this success with the lion and the mouse they made millions and millions of dollars we're only going to do American stories they decided to keep building, and the, they built Broadway's first dinner theater. For my avid Broadway followers who are listening, uh, the theater lasted until 1982, even though it had a varied history. But it was Broadway's first dinner theater called the Feliz Berger, and then from there it was the Fulton, and then many people depending on, you know, you'll, you'll have to out yourself date-wise. But uh, if you remember the original Helen Hayes, which was the 70s into the 80s, was demolished to build the Marriott Marquis Hotel. And so this was their, their next creative endeavor, a, a dinner theater. It did not go great. Uh, Americans, uh, specifically New Yorkers, couldn't eat and watch theater at the same time. Many people complained. Many people talked. They hemorrhaged quite literally hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. In today's money, it would have been millions of dollars. So to get themselves out of debt, they said, let's do British shows like everyone else is doing because we've done so much American stuff. To them, I think it was the easy way out. They brought in a show called The Quaker Girl, which was not great. Uh, they lost $10,000 in uh, 1911 money. And they decide we have to go to London, I think, to get the good shows. And they go to London, they get on the White Star Line or the Olympic in February 1912. They sign some contracts while they're there. They run into another theater-owning couple. They all realize they're going back on the same ship together. This is great. April 10th, 1912, Southampton, London, maiden voyage of this new ship. What could go wrong? Oh, this is good, It's not Tim. great. It's not great. <laughs> the Harris' show up to, of course, a ship called the Titanic. The Selwyns were delayed in Paris. They miss the boarding by a day, which, of course, is the best thing that ever happened to them. The Harris' board, and while well on board, Renee on that Sunday, the four days in, she doesn't know it's it's not, you know, none of them, of course, know what lies ahead in the ocean, but She falls down the main staircase, just like the the staircase from the movie. Basically, all of the same details minus Leonardo DiCaprio. And she 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 trips on her dress, falls to the bottom, shatters her right arm. And basically, surgeons are like, we don't have the stuff to put you back together. So um, you should stay in your room. She gets antsy. She eventually gets her dress on, goes to dinner. They finally make their way back to their stateroom. 1030. They're playing what I call one handed cards. And at the end of this game, about an hour and 10 minutes later, all the hangers with all of her dresses in the closet had shook uh, for the rumble of the engine. The entire time, and at 11:40 p.m., they uh, they stopped as they hit that iceberg, and the engines shut off. They eventually make a pact that they want to get off the ship together. Uh, Of course, you know, as we all know now, there's not enough lifeboats. So Henry goes down with the ship. Renee survives. And when she gets back to New York City, it's at the memorial of her husband um, at the end of April 1912, which is held at the Hudson Theater. She realizes she's inherited three Broadway theaters and she becomes the first female theater owner in Broadway history, first female producer in Broadway history. And she gets to start all of this as the first woman in in meetings with all male counterparts and male colleagues and she's still saddled with hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt from that dinner theater and this is the challenge at the start of this woman's career
2: but she rises to the challenge yeah and she, rises. she was Let's very go. Yeah. I learned this from your tour she was very literally the one who
3: wore the pants in that relationship. talk yes. about that that is a brilliant fascinating detail about her you you, you have to imagine i mean You know, we've made strides, certainly, uh, with gender equality in the workplace. But, of course, 1912, I mean, Renee, her big thing was on the Titanic. She was in the gossip columns because she was the first woman smoking in public. And that women weren't even allowed to smoke in public was very, oh, wow, 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 wow. This is very forward. So imagine then she shows up to all these meetings with all men. And they're like, you're a woman. You know, what are you doing here? "Yeah, Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you own those theaters, but you only own them because X, Y, and Z. And she showed up to one meeting after no one was paying attention to her. She showed up dressed like them. She wore a pantsuit, which, of course, is shocking for the early 1900s, and 19-teens. And she said, finally, a pair of pants was what made them sit up out of their chairs and notice me. And she said, I never showed up to a meeting again the rest of my life without wearing a pair of pants.
2: I have to say, Renee Harris, she's our heroine. She's I just our heroine. Think yeah,
3: yeah. So brilliant. And how so did we diff- not know her? How did we not know? In the history of Broadway, I'd had my company for nine years before I did this tour and created this tour of the Hudson Theater with the theater's team. I'd never heard of this woman. I couldn't with- believe it. Well, thanks to you. Now well, we can. Yeah, here we are.
2: And so, with that, Tim and I are going to take a brief break, but we'll be back. There is so much more to say.
0: terms apply purchases must be on card visit go.mx slash you know
1: at Amica Insurance we know it's more than just a car or a house it's the four wheels that get you where you're going and the four walls that welcome you home when you combine auto and home insurance with Amica we'll help protect it all and the more you cover the more you can save Amica Empathy is our best policy.
2: And we're back. I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast. And today I'm with Tim Dolan, the creator of Broadway Up Close, a theater district tour company and a brilliant Broadway historian. And we are talking about theater in the Gilded Age. So Tim, before we go on to a couple of more theaters, I would really like to talk about some of the performers in the Gilded Age that audiences would have known. And perhaps the most famous, you can confirm this, was Lillian Russell. Sure. So can you talk a little bit about who she really was and what
3: she was like as a performer. Who was Lillian Russell? So Lillian Russell's big thing in her early days was that world of operetta. So she's doing a lot of Gilbert and Sullivan that later transitions. (laughs) It feels like an unnatural transition into more theater as we know it today or burlesque or review shows very over the top, very fancy, very dressed up. But my favorite Lillian Russell fun fact was when she went over to London to do Princess Ida for Gilbert and Sullivan themselves. Over in London, they got a fight, and uh, you know, a creative differences. And then she ends up not premiering uh, and and becoming Princess Ida. But she she was our operetta star. She was, I think, the closest we have to like a Kristen Chenoweth, where like that high trilling soprano uh, is kind of the 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 thing, and really what she became known for. And then, you know, like any great career, as career longevity you change with the times and burlesque is added and other genres are added to her. And career. she became less popular? Yeah, over time, careers on stage are hard. It's, uh, you know, it's why you hear this thing as an actor myself. It's, oh, it's so hard. And it is. It's hard to get any big shows, but then it's really hard to string an entire series of shows together. As the genres change, the early 1900s, everything is changing so vastly from Operetta to then Review. It's a little more broad. It's a little more Broadway. It's a little more New York. And then from there, it becomes book musicals. And so then, you know, you have to adapt with the times. Certain performers, uh, maybe we'll even talk about them, Julian Eltinge. I mean, oh, we is, are, we yeah. absolutely are. I mean, is is as genres change, you have to change with the times. And I, we see that currently uh, as musicals get higher and higher and more belty and more contemporary. A lot of my friends who do big voiced, big kind of classic musicals have to adapt in and learn how to belt. It's the same thing. It's just one hundred and twenty years ago.
2: So there are so many stories about Lillian Russell, and and often most of those stories talk about her escort, her often escort, Diamond Jim Brady. hi, <laughs> yes. Yeah, and how the two of them would show up at Rector's, which was one of the famous restaurants in Times Square. And I want to ask you about that, because along with the theaters... Restaurants were growing because people wanted to eat after the theater. Usually it was after the theater. But Rector's was a very particular genre of, of restaurant called the Lobster Palace. Can you What is that? Can you talk about what Rector's was like and what it would have been like going to an after theater dinner here in the Gilded Age there?
3: I love that you mentioned this because in my early research, I came across these stories of these lobster palaces. And of course, my only frame of reference to lobster palaces was Red Lobster, which is very different. Oh, not, quite, to not say, yeah. quite the same, Not quite the same, not nearly as lavish, although it tastes very good. So Lobster Palace is very Gilded Age, very New York, and very, really, Times Square. It was for what feels like new money, new immigrants, where the Astors and all of the fancy old money are on Fifth Avenue. They're in, it's a little, slightly seedier neighborhood. It's about to be the hustling, bustling Times Square we know. And all of these restaurants were Of course, decadent, of course, over the top. Lots of seafood, lots of desserts, lots of fruits, lots of champagne. But the thing about lobster palaces was most of them you walked to enter into a lobster palace. You walked down a grand staircase to enter. And so now we have stage doors. You'll go see the Music Man revival. Last year, you could see Hugh Jackman and Sutton Foster. You go to the stage door after and hope that Hugh Jackman will blow you a kiss at the stage door. The old lobster palace version, think like Carol Channing, Hello, Dolly, Harmonia Gardens coming down the staircase and everyone greets her. That was Lobster Palaces. You would finish a show at, let's say, the Hudson. You'd run to nearby Rector's, which is right around the corner. And then from there, about a half hour later, Hugh Jackman and Sutton Foster, or the stars of those days, would walk down the stairs. There was a live orchestra, of course, because there's no radio. So it's live orchestra, plays the soundtrack to the show you just saw. And perhaps it's My White Night as they enter. And then they parade down the stairs. Everyone claps and drinks their champagne. And this is nightlife after a Broadway show in Times Square, early 1900s.
2: It sounds really exciting. I like to say that, you know, Delmonico's and Sherry's over on Fifth Avenue, maybe yeah. that's where the Blue Bloods and the the Well Heeled went, but I have to say
3: Rector's is where the party really was, do you think? Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. and it's what's fascinating is there's even influences. I mean, Rector's was so fancy that uh, the Ziegfeld Follies, uh, in its early years, is using influences of the neighborhood to determine what the show and the reviews for each year were going to be as they changed, a la Saturday Night Live and their opening sketches being very topical and relevant. And And there was a show, uh, a, a scene that featured a song called The Girl from Rectors. And it was about the fancy men, a la Diamond Jim Brady, who would come and wine and dine these young women and these stars. And the Floridora girls fit perfectly into that. And they did this song that was about these loose women that you could pick up at Rectors. And it backfired. They thought they were paying wonderful homage to this restaurant. And then the rumor started that, oh, that's, you know, that's where the loose women, the prostitutes of the day go, I would never be seen at rectors. And then they all start going to different restaurants. And that ends up being the decline of rectors uh, is this is this song with, you're going to Google the weirdest cover of sheet music ever. It's a guy holding like a lobster, you know, thermidor steamer thing. And then he pulls off the top and it's a girl, you know, in a costume sitting on this silver platter, you know, perfect art for the era. Oh gosh. Yeah. Now I want to go back to a really fascinating performer that you just
2: mentioned a couple of, of minutes ago, and that's Julian Elting. Yeah. And, I was on one of your tours and we were in one of the theaters which isn't a legitimate theater anymore it's a, a movie theater and you pointed up and you said those are some really interesting images because they're <laughs> actually the performer Julian Eltinge and I looked at and I thought hmm that's not what I would have thought can you talk Never, about yeah. what I'm talking about and can you talk about who Julian Eltinge was and what was particularly interesting about Julian Elton.
3: Yeah, this is another one of these people where I stumbled across this and I go, how are we not all talking about this? This is wild. A hundred years before RuPaul's Drag Race, a man performing as a woman center stage was not mainstream. But Julian Elton somehow finds this loophole, becomes so good at it. Every one of his appearances, he's dressed as a woman. Most people would finish the show and get to the end of the show and not even realize that it was a man in drag. Makeup companies approach him and he starts doing makeup ads for all of these famous cosmetic companies. He's the ad because he makes it look so good. And this man, when you really break down At a time where this isn't mainstream, what this man is doing in the mainstream and how much money he's making from it. He was making $12,000 a week in 1910 money. Today's money, it's something like hundreds of thousands of dollars a week. And all of this he's doing in drag. And so on the Empire Theater, it was built in 1912 on 42nd Street on the south side. They decide we're going to name it for him because he's so fancy. Everyone knows him. And then they approach him and say, we're going to name it for you. We would love for you to star on stage in your dress. And he said, how many seats? And they said, it's Broadway. It's 900, but it's like medium Broadway. And he said, oh, it's too small. I would never do that. And he didn't. As I sit here in front of you, just down the block from this theater, 111 years later, in those 111 years, he never performed inside. And Thomas Lamb, who designed most of our glorious movie theaters in America, he was the original architect. He said, well, we'll just paint him in the building if he's not going to be on stage we'll paint him above the stage and so if you go and get your movie ticket at what is now AMC Movie Theater's lobby which is what the theater has been converted into the entire original proscenium is there the painting and frescoes above are still there and it's three women in togas but it's not it's three Julians in togas if you look at the one on the far right you'll see um, a man's thick uh, leg sticking out of the one toga and then from afar the the features soften but as they did renovations in the 90s um, when they got up close to retouch the painting. The restoration artist said it's very clearly a man's jaw. It isn't a rumor. That is three men in dresses as it's been for 111 years.
2: I just find that extraordinary. That's yeah, unbelievable. Right? Yeah. And then the PR surrounding him when he was not on stage was it showed him boxing and yeah, very course, sportive and muscular. Yeah. I mean, a complete opposite. The
3: whole PR campaign around Julian Elton was just fascinating. It's crazy. I mean, it really and it continues, you know, rock Huts and all the years later still to today. It's this idea of like you've got to be masculine to be a leading man. Right. And so his managers, his agents set this entire campaign around him doing, I find all these photos unearthed of him doing manly things, like you say, boxing, painting the side of a house, milking a cow, which is hilarious. Uh, They would plant people in audiences so that he mid-show could, uh, you know, this guy's disrupting the show and he could assert his manliness mid-show and, hey, you there, quiet down, I'm performing, and then go back to, you know, the scene. And it was all planted. It was all to build this kind of imagery around him. Every time in the press, it's hilarious now you look at it, you can't. You have to try to imagine what his life must have been like on the personal side of it, being having so much wealth, being so well-known, being so well-known for this thing. And then every time they'd see him in the press, he was with a different woman traveling with a friend, but he would always introduce them as his wife. And so you see all of these different wives of Julian Eltinge that were not his wife. And so probably a gay man. But again, it's early 1900s. You never would have talked about that, especially in the press.
2: I just think it's fascinating to look at all the 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 gender identity bending that that he addressed at that time. Yeah. Extraordinary. Now, I want to go up the street a little bit um, back to a theater you've mentioned a couple of times, The New Amsterdam. Yeah. And also to a concept that you mentioned um, really at the beginning of the show, which was there were a number of shows that influenced culture and influenced fashion and style. And one of them was at The New Amsterdam. And that was The Merry Widow. Yeah. Which, again, a European operetta opened here in New York in 1907, but the Mary Widow had a tremendous effect on
3: fashion and style. Can you talk about that? It's so hard to imagine now that this could be a thing that you would go see a Broadway show, leave the Broadway show, and go. I gotta have that hat. I gotta have that hat that that woman was wearing center stage. It's like just so you can't. I, I do. I research. I do this research. I just try to imagine like what could this have been like. But all of his women saw the show. The lead woman had what was called the Mary Widow hat. It was this huge over-the-top hat. And everyone was like, I've got to have it. And so society became known as the Mary Widow hat. And then at the theater to, you know, in early days, pre-merchandise giveaways, they decide for one performance, if you attend with your ticket, they'll give you one of these Mary Widow hats. And it was it almost it was a panic. I, all of these women, they almost ran out of hats. There's all these reports I see. They called it a hot skirmish of women trying to get these free hats. And I think it's so hard to imagine now. But early 1900s, the Mary Widow hat was all the rage.
2: And I think it actually inspired other fashions to corsets and lingerie course, and all yeah, right, all course. these things that went. Now, another interesting aspect of the new Amsterdam is... It could be said to be home to one of Broadway's most famous ghosts. Yeah. Now, we can't leave the show without talking about a couple of ghosts, and sure. I can't wait for the one that we will end with. But. Can you talk a little bit about who is said to perhaps wander the halls of the New Amsterdam today?
3: Yeah, so the Ziegfeld Follies starts on the roof of the Olympia Theater, which we talked about with Oscar Hammerstein the first, nineteen oh seven. Florence Ziegfeld, uh, Flora, yeah, Florence Zigfeld. The weird fun fact about him is he was obsessed with the number thirteen, so most of the things he did were thirteen. So it was Ziegfeld Follies of nineteen oh seven, not the Ziegfeld Follies of nineteen oh seven, because then it wasn't thirteen um, things, uh, thirteen letters and numbers. And so he had these all these weird quirks and isms and things. So nineteen. 19- Seven Florence Ziegfeld uh, of the Ziegfeld Follies does what's a, a precursor to the Radio City Rockettes, a line of kicking women. Starts on the roof of the Olympia Theater by Oscar Hammerstein, and then eventually, once it's perfected, moves into the New Amsterdam Theater. The Follies girls were, like the Rockettes, identical, fashionable, very fancy. And one of them was a woman named Olive Thomas. She was the face of the Follies. She, every other girl was jealous of her and hated her for it. She got picked for everything. She gets picked, of course, because... She was romantically linked to the boss, Florence Ziegfeld of the Ziegfeld Follies. He was married. It didn't go too well with his wife. His wife was Billy Burke, the original Glinda the Good Witch and the original Wizard of Oz. And so she, you know, has her moment uh, with the boss as the face of the Follies. And in 1920, she was married to an actor named Jack Pickford after being in the Follies for five years. They decide we're going to go to vacation. Let's go, we're rich, we got money, let's go to Paris, let's go to the Ritz. They go to the Ritz Hotel 20 days after they pose for the press uh, on the east side of Manhattan. They get to the Ritz Hotel, And uh, Jack, her husband, wakes up and looks around the room. There's no olive in the room with him, goes into the bathroom, finds her body laid out uh, on the bathroom floor. There's varying reports of did she commit suicide? There's varying reports of she had a headache. She grabbed the wrong bottle. Uh, Some reports say she grabbed a bottle of syphilis medicine because Jack had syphilis. That's been denied. And so it's this murky kind of history. But what we do know is she dies in this hotel. She then, for the first time, is seen in 1952 at the theater in a long golden green beaded dress. She has a sash across the chest um, that says O-L-I-V-E, olive. And it's the first sighting of a series of sightings once about every decade is she's seen in the building. And my favorite, kind of, ooh, I love that moment of the story is that when she was found in that hotel room in Paris, she was found with a little blue glass bottle where the pills or the medicine, whichever story you believe came in. The first time she was seen in 1952, she was seen with that little blue bottle. And so when I when I unearth these ghost stories and, and, and navigating all of it, it's those details to me that are like, you know, maybe we're onto something. Uh, maybe there is some truth to this.
2: And people swear they see her to this day.
3: Correct. Yeah. yeah.
2: Now, I'm really curious, Tim, because we've talked about a handful of theaters that were up and running in Broadway in this sort of 1900 to 1910 period, but that's only a fraction of them, right? When Broadway was
3: going full tilt before World War I, how many theaters are we talking about? So our top uh, at the height of Broadway, 79 Broadway theaters. Now we have 41. On an average Tony season now, we have typically 31 to 35 new shows will open. In 1927, 264 shows opened in one season. And so it seems all good things must come to an end. The bubble bursts, the stock market crash, the Great Depression, World War II, seedy neighborhood. And for 40 years, Broadway as a business and a real estate business flatlines over the next four decades from 1927 till really the early 70s. But it's back. But it's back, thankfully.
2: <laughs> no, I I gosh, I hate to even end our Gilded Age tour, but but we have to. But I wanna do it with really my favorite theater, and I, I think it's certainly one of one of yours. Yes. And that's just down the street from the Hudson on 44th. And it was built during yet another boom of theater building that period around 1907, right? That was yes. another period. So, Tim, I do know you love this theater too, and this was the Belasco Theater and was named for Empresario. David Belasco, can you talk about who he was, why
3: he built this theater, and what do we need to know about it? He's an utterly fascinating human. If there's anyone I could sit down and have a drink with or many drinks with, this would be he. Uh, He builds this theater in 1907, originally called the Stuyvesant. He didn't put his name on the uh, front of the building because he was leasing another theater that's now called the New Victory on 42nd Street. That was already called the Velasco. He builds this new one. It's state of the art. It is over-the-top technology. It is uh, innovative, dimming lights. On things that we see now in the Wicked's and the the technically advanced shows today, this is where it starts in this theater in 1907. He puts his name on the building when he gives up that lease uh, in 1910. And then he says, I love the theater so much. I want to live here. The fascinating thing about David Velasco is he called himself the Bishop of Broadway. And the reason he gave himself this moniker is because he was Jewish by birth. But every single day of his life, just because he liked it, had a lot of friends who were Catholic, he dressed like a Catholic priest. He was not a priest. He was Jewish, but he just liked the look of it. And so he gives him this nickname, wears the priest suit, the clerical collar, priest robe, clerical collar every day. And then in 1910, moves into the building and builds his entire 10-room duplex apartment on the roof of his theater. If you look at the theater today and you look upright, also known as the eastern side of the theater— you'll see the entire structure of his living room is all still there. Stained glass windows, of course, because he wants it to feel like a church goes perfect with his priest robes. And the bulk of the structure is still there. Almost everything on the inside, almost everything removed when he died, 1931. Now, we're going to come back to that apartment in just a minute. But I want to ask
2: you a little bit more about Belasco. Now, he was he kind of was a womanizer, right? I mean, he
3: had a reputation. There were these wild parties he would throw in the apartment, right? He would get all these women and he would start their careers. He would take incredible care of them. He would really launch them to stardom. And there were many of them. And so when you look at these stories, do you read between the lines and say there had to be more stuff going on? Or is he a faithful, devout husband to his wife? He was married and had kids. I don't know that we'll ever really know, but he feels in this priest robe like a theatrical Lothario who is, uh, you know, blurring the lines of relationships. But, uh, you know, on the positive side of him, he launched most female. uh, He made stars out of a a lot of females of the early days. Uh, Leslie Carter, Mary Pickford, uh, Frances Starr. If we talk architecturally, if we talk innovation-wise, really he did it all he was state-of-the-art theater if you're going to cook an egg on stage the oven should work we should smell the egg if it's going to be a sunrise you should be able to dim those lights and it should look like a sunrise and we should be able to add gradients to lighting and dim the lights shouldn't just be a wash of footlights the stage should raise and lower we should have stuff coming in from above that are full set pieces and theater as we know it today really is defined in this theater in 1907 Now, I want to go back to this apartment
2: because it has been closed. It's off limits to the public. There are some structural issues. But you managed to get (laughs) inside and see it. So can you share with listeners how you you happen to do that? And what does it look like in there?
3: It was crazy. Uh, it's one of these moments of my life, and I have many of these moments, and people say, why does this stuff always happen to you? And I think because I smile a lot, and I'm always on a sidewalk, and people bump into me. And uh, we were on a tour. We get lots of eavesdroppers. This one guy eavesdropped. He was a construction worker. But he eavesdropped. He listened to the stories I was telling about the Belasco. And as we walked away to finish the tour, he said, "I, you know, some of the stories you told, I actually was intimately involved in the renovation. Some of those photos you showed, I did all that work. And we kind of instantly had this bond and struck up a friendship. He couldn't believe that I was talking about him. I couldn't believe that I had met the guy who did all the renovations. And uh, I had waited for years for my moment to meet someone who really was intricately involved in the Blasco Theater. And I asked him, who has the key to the apartment that's been sealed since the city closed it in 1989 for structural reasons? And he laughed and he said, I do. And I met the guy with the key, 8.8 million people, and I found it. And so he took me inside. Uh, it was definitely structurally unsound. There's original Tiffany pendant lamps that you see if we sit in the theater, uh, currently home to Goodnight Oscar with Sean Hayes. And uh, they all like go through the floor and you're stepping over this air air ducts and air conditioning units that they added through the uh, went all through the apartment and you're stepping over these huge ducts. Uh, but the grandeur, the magic, the Catholicism present in this apartment, all of it's still there. He was five foot four, he being David Belasco. All the doorways are really low. They look like um, points uh, with wood carvings like you'd find in a church. Uh, Stained glass ceilings, of course, above. Beautiful, ginormous fireplace. His bathroom still intact upstairs. The details that were still left, uh, his dresser, uh, was utterly fascinating. And a a pinch me moment, a New York moment, uh, a moment that I treasure. And some say he still walks
2: the halls of that theater yeah. too right another theater ghost do you agree with that
3: yeah so the first time they say he was seen was 1932 it was the first opening night after he died he is distinct looking he's five foot four he wears a priest costume if we can call it that his daily attire of of robes and so the first show after he dies on opening night stage hands are letting the audience in they see Someone who's five foot four, dressed in a priest costume or in robes, in the balcony, sits down, uh, holds onto this railing, sits in the seat, and gone. Uh, The stagehands, you know, are are freaked out. Next opening night, they see this again. And for 25 years, the stagehands say, whether we believe them or not, I do, I tend to. They seem, they're pretty serious people. Uh, 25 years, every opening night, a priest would appear in the same spot in the balcony. And it was David deeming each new production worthy of his theater. My favorite fun fact of all of this is that the last time he was seen on opening night performances, cause he's been seen a couple other times in other places since, uh, the last opening night was Oh Calcutta. And if you know, O Calcutta, there's, uh, yes. there's no <laughs> coast, there's no costumes, very risque, all about sex. And because of the subject matter of the show, the stagehands say it scared the priest away from the building. And he hasn't been seen since opening night of O'Calcutta.
2: Now, one of my trademark Gilded Gentleman questions that I usually end a show with is if you could sit down with anyone and ask them anything you want, who would it be? Well, you've told us who it would be. It would, in fact, be David Belasco. But my question for you is what would you ask him?
3: I think I'd ask him, uh, you know, what are... What do you want your legacy to be? Was this all, as you're developing and and creating this innovation, was it thought out? Was it planned? Was it strategic? Or did it just kind of uh, come to be as it went, production by production? If you ask me that question again, if I hadn't pre-answered it with David Blasco, the other guy I would love to sit down is Sam Schubert. These guys who just moved to New York City with very little money in their pockets, how much of what their ambitions were was a strategy and how much uh, was them flying by the seat of their pants. As someone who has built a business in Times Square, we have a gift shop in Times Square, we have tours of the theater district, we do classes in, in linked with these Broadway shows. As someone who has spent the last 13 years of his life building actual physical stuff in the exact locations where these men built physical theaters and a life and an industry... What I would give to sit down with them and talk like small business owner to small business owner to know how they did it, to see if there's any of the tools of their trade that could be applied 120 years later to me in my life or uh, find some comfort in knowing they were flying by the seat of their pants. They had some vision, but most of it was just as they went, because that's a lot of my theatrical life is, uh, you know, having an idea and then manifesting a million other ideas off of that.
2: Well, I think it has a lot to do with brains, intelligence and courage for all (laughs) of you. Right. Yeah. And if you could go back in history, back to this Gilded Age, what theater would you want to spend time in?
3: What theater would you want to see a production in? And what production would you want to see? So their Empire Theater, not to be confused with the Empire Theater, that's the AMC movie theater on 42nd Street. There was a different empire. It was right across uh, from the casino, directly across from the original Metropolitan Opera at 40th and Broadway. It opened in 1893. The first play that premiered there was written by David Belasco, the girl I left behind. He was a playwright among theater builder and uh, all the other jobs he had. And that theater was the home to the offices of Charles Froman, one of those six men of the theatrical syndicate. But the production in that theater that I would most want to attend was 1904 into 1905, the original production of Peter Pan with Maud Adams. She uh, created an unbelievable life for herself. She was paid a million dollars in 1905 to be Peter Pan, in 1905 money today's money. It's something like $17 million a year to play that and to see what this first ever adaptation of this woman putting on this loincloth to see what that production looked like, to see her performance and to bask in the glow of this theater, which was the home of the original Peter Pan and the first ever importance of being Ernest transfer and, um, Henrik Ibsen's doll's house all started at this theater To just kind of bask in the walls and glow of that theater, which was demolished, sadly, in 1952, so I'll never get to, that would be the the moment in time the theater I'd go back to.
2: Gosh, Tim. There is so much more we could keep (laughs) saying and I hope you will come back for another episode of The Gilded Gentleman. Thank you so much for joining me today. We have covered so much and you've given listeners such a a visual interpretation of what theater and Broadway was like during this uh, period of The Gilded Age. Thank you so much. Thank you, Carl. You have to come back. (laughs) I will. Thank you. And to my listeners, whether you live here in New York or you're coming for a visit, check out Tim's extraordinary tours of Broadway, at BroadwayUpClose.com, also on Instagram and Facebook. Tim offers in-person and virtual tours with his team of professional guides, all of whom currently work in the theater, workshops as well, and they're just a wonderful way to see Broadway well up close. (laughs) And to my listeners, thank you so much for joining me for another episode of The Gilded Gentleman. The Gilded Gentleman is produced by Bowery Boys Media, and this episode was edited and produced by Kieran Gannon. I invite my listeners to become patrons of the show on patreon.com slash the Gilded Gentleman. Your support helps me to manage the costs of researching, writing, creating, and producing the show. I am deeply grateful. I couldn't do it without you. And I'll see you soon. After all, what's life without a little glint of gold?
1: At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home, the place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy.